So, you wake up in the middle of the night, you grab your Jesus stick and race off into the jungle. You don't call, you don't write. Season two of Lost is over, but we have to go back one more time to talk about season two here on Down the Hatch. It's the Lost Rewatch podcast here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I'm Josh Wiggler. I am joined here by Mike Bloom. No, we did not die in the hatch implosion. Neither did anybody, apparently. Everyone's safe. Who knows? Josh and I might even have some superpowers after this. That seems to happen 33% of the time if you get hit by the hatch's energy when it implodes. There was some strange purple light in the sky that happened right before we started recording, but we're not going to talk about that. That's no matter. Let's get back to our business at hand. Business as usual. Okay, so here's what we're doing. As we do when a season of Lost is in the books, we take a beat, we stop down, we take one podcast to look back on everything that came before and start looking ahead toward season three. Some programming notes. So today we're going to get into feedback. We've got a lot of great feedback from the listeners of Down the Hatch, the Hatchlings. You can send your feedback all the time, every time, Down the Hatch at postshowrecaps.com is the best way to get in touch with us for sure. So we've got all of that to get through today. We've got feedback from the finale, feedback about season two overall. I'm sure Mike and I are going to just want to give our takes Mm. on season two now that it's in the books. We're going to look ahead towards season three. We're going to do a final accounting of the MVPs and LVPs of season two. We are also going to combine that with the MVPs and LVPs of the series overall through two seasons of the show and we're going to do that as well um for the episodes uh we can now finally intermingle the season two episodes into the rankings Mm. of season one i think that's going to be a really interesting conversation as well it is important to note next week you would think we would be starting season three guess what we're not we're not (laughs) starting season three next week that's a twist and i'm telling you the twist right away um mike bloom you're moving Yes, I found a nice little place on a nice little island by the name of Hydra. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots of employment opportunities there, so I have made the move. I am legitimately moving uh, to an undisclosed location, and so to put less of a strain on, obviously, a very stressful Sugoy. situation, uh, yes. we, we wanted to make sure that, you know, uh, let's not hop into Season 3 outright while everything is literally in shambles around me mike's mike's life is going to be very hectic next week so we are going to we're going to push the season three launch one week um but we will not be taking a week off from down the hatch i'm going to be getting back together with john kraus to do a book club uh season two book club we're going to talk about um the, the the literary references throughout season two we're going to talk i think some bad twin woof we're gonna. You're you're dodging a bullet, Mike. Mm-hmm. You're doing better than Anna Lucia. Uh, we're gonna talk about the ARG, I believe, that was surrounding season two. So that should be a really fun podcast. And I I hear a rumor that there may be a special guest on that podcast as well. So Mike will not be on Down the Hatch next week. We will not be talking about an episode of Lost on Down the Hatch next week. But we will have an episode of Down the Hatch. It'll be a bonus 
book club podcast. No, I have not yet read Watership Down. <laughs> Listen, I think what's going on in the world today, like Watership Down is the last thing on your to-do list right now. And I can't wait until people start adding us being like, you're only doing this to prevent watching the first six episodes of season three. <laughs> I think that's that's definitely, uh, there's an argument, but that is not that is not what's happening. Uh, so, so mark your calendars. July 17th is when the season two book club podcast will drop. And July 24th, is when we will start season three. Okay, so no season three premiere recap next week. Season three premiere recap is coming your way on July twenty fourth. Um, that's it. That's the business. That's the business. Now we can just get into the fun stuff, Mike. Yeah, let's get into the back of that mullet and talk about season two. Well, let's talk about uh, let's talk about season two. Let's talk about it in the context of the finale before we even get into the mm. feedback that we've got for this episode. Um, have have your thoughts crystallized at all in the week since we last spoke about Live Together, Die Alone, uh, either about the finale specifically or the season generally? Just what are some of the things that you've been mulling over in, in that beautiful brain of yours, Mike? Oh, thank you so much. It's beautifully grotesque, I would say, my brain is. Uh, I think that... You know, I came into this season, and I think this will reflect on a lot of our listeners' opinions as well, saying season two is not a very well-regarded season of loss, I think especially in the pantheon of the six total. I know it was my second least favorite season ahead of season six going in just because of the memories I had associated with it, the experiment with the tailies that may not have paid off depending on what your your view is of it, and you know, a lot of time spent in the hatch and sort of steering away from the stuff that was built in season one. I will say, on the one hand, I was very pleasantly surprised with season two. I think that season two had some pretty damn killer episodes, and it's more intrinsically linked to season one than you might initially think. It's not like, I think the typical uh, conventional wisdom behind season two is like, well, they eschewed the flashbacks, they did all this crazy stuff, and they went off the rails almost immediately. But really, there's a lot of contained DNA in season two compared to season one, to the point where we were comparing a lot of episodes to previous instances of those episodes from season one. So it, it's been nice to see that sequel sort of crystallize. But on the other hand, I will not be surprised, Josh, if we call season two the most uneven season of Lost. In that, at least when we're moving into season three, we can say that there was a definitive, like, low streak, yeah. and then it sort of ends up, you know, much like a roller coaster, ends up peaking at a, a really nice group of episodes to end it off. But the thing that I noticed most about season two, especially going back over our ratings, is just like how every three or four or five episodes, there would just be like a clunker. Yeah. You know, or, or a not so good episode. And so it feels a little Peaks bit less and valleys. like. Peaks and valleys. Yeah, exactly. But it feels so it feels less like, OK, you know, we're going to have we're going to have the greater good in what Kate did uh, where there's like consistency almost to the quality of episodes uh, where streaks are happening. Here it's more so like, okay, depending on just the the configuration of characters and writers for that episode, every once in a while you'll just get something that sort of sticks out from the rest in a not-so-good way. I mean, look at the first three episodes of season two, for instance. Yeah, sure. Uh, we, ha we have a uh, pretty weird sandwich going on here where the bread is Man of Science, Man of Faith, and Orientation, and we got a little bit of nasty meat in the middle <laughs> in the form of a drift. I think it's a great microcosm of how just every once in a while – There'll be spurts of not-so-great episodes that I think people remember season two for being. So I'm glad we were sort of able to bust that myth. But at the same time, in being so uneven, by literal definition, I have to call this season odd. It's odd. It's, it's definitely odd. It has some of the highest highs of Lost. 
some of the episodes and some of the moments in here are just the peakiest of peaks, you know, just mm-hmm. really, really high marks for the show. But it does have some some whiffs. It has some duds. And beyond the duds, it has some episodes that are just like outright kind of forgettable. Um, mm-hmm. And season one has a little bit of that in the middle of season one, I think. But for the most part, season one is like a fairly smooth ride uh, in, in so far as like that smoothness is, is rough by design by the nature of the story. Um, here, I think that there this is a season where... Lost is is showing some structural issues under the weight of an episode order. The fact that this is a show yeah. that has to have like 20 plus episodes per season at this point. I think season two feels that the most. Season three feels that early. And I think season three, you know, Stranger in a Strange Land is going to get knocked around appropriately, I think, by <laughs> us. Um, but I think past that point, from that point onward, I think we are only going to have like a couple of episodes that are relatively low. And I think like relatively low as in like high twos, low threes. I, th- right. I think like from from strange after Stranger in a Strange Land, starting with Trisha Tanaka and onward, I think just about every episode is either going to be a three or very close to it. Um, where mm-hmm. here there were a few that are that are uh, that are on the lower end in season two. Um, but this is the Hatch season. I think that there's a lot of nostalgia for people who watched Lost on the first run with this season because this was this was some of the most like lean forward television of the time. This is yes. this is you know stop that blast door, map down, and, and study it for hours with your friends type of television. Um, this is like the holy shit! I can't believe Michael just killed Anna and Libby uh, type of television. There are just some moments here that are absolutely iconic for the show and for the experience of watching the show. It goes hand in hand with my idea that uh, bad Lost is still good. You know, like even Mm. when Lost is at its worst, this show is just so elite um, that if this is the wobbliest season or among the wobblier seasons, uh, it is still I'll take this season over, you know, uh, at least three out of four seasons of Heroes. You know, like I'll take (laughs) I'll take this season of television over and Heroes Reborn. Do you include that in there? Sure. So uh, out of four out of five seasons of Heroes, then Uh, I'll take this season of television out of at the very least four out of eight seasons of Dexter. You know, I will Mm -hmm. take this season of television over, I would say, uh, there's there's two Game of Thrones seasons I would definitely not take. There's probably three, maybe four, maybe four <laughs> Game of Thrones seasons. You're just working your way up, there. you know. So like, even if season two is a little wobbly, that's a relative. It's a relative viewpoint. It's relative to everything else. It's relative to the rest of Lost. Within Lost, this is maybe a little bit wonkier. I think evidenced by the way you and I felt about Live Together Die Alone specifically, and some of the the things that are like a little bit of a hang up with us. But that's like that's nitpicky stuff because mm-hmm. when you it's like Top Chef. You and I talk about Top Chef with a great crew of people over at Reality mm-hmm. TV Rehap Ups. And when a, when a series of meals are so good that you have no idea who to send home, the judges go down to real brass tacks, right? Like, right. what is the nittiest of nitpicks to, to pick at? Um, I think that's what, I, that's, that's what I'm feeling as it pertains to season two and its place in lost history, that I'm being nitpicky, ultimately. This is still my favorite show of all time, and if you've come to this podcast expecting uh, unbiased reporting, you're in the wrong place. Yeah, and I think that, to your point about the, the lean-forward viewing, I think that the definitive pivot in season two from season one is that they really built out the mythology, 
You know, we have several orientation videos that introduce the Dharma Initiative. The other dumb of it all gets explored a bit. It's going to get explored much more next season. But here we get to see we finish the season with their leader being revealed and the fact that they're that they're all a sham. Uh, of course, we have everything with the actual purpose of the hatch. The fact that there are more sci-fi elements involved here with a pocket of electromagnetic radiation. And we're going to get into a guy that'll be able to to see through time because of that. And even some other mysteries were solved. Like we found out in an episode literally titled What Kate Did. What Kate, what Kate Did. did <laughs> which took three flashback yeah. episodes last season that we didn't know about whatsoever. Uh, and on top of that, even just out of the mythology, they still made a lot of bold leap forwards in what they did with their characters. They killed Shannon. They killed Anna Lucia and Libby. You know, Michael has this huge heel turn from the guy who is screaming his son's name in the season one finale to him regretfully driving a boat off with his son in tow in the season two finale. You know, I think maybe one of the interesting things is maybe with this season and our main crop of characters, like the A-team, as it were, maybe the, the decisions they make with those characters are not necessarily as paramount as what we did with, with those characters that I just mentioned. But what they're able to do with some parts of their ensemble uh, in this season, even if they're not the most prominent and full-facing forward as like a Jack or a Kate, is still very significant. Totally, totally, totally. All right, let's get into the others. Let's get into some feedback from everybody. Let's let that drive our conversation forward. We'll stop down tangents are inevitable uh let's talk about um because we talked about this about the, the like the basically the rush job to make mm-hmm. this episode and the insane timetable that this episode was was created on some of the sacrifices that were made in service of that apparently um this is from an interview with damon lindelof and carlton Cuse with bonnie coble uh about um the the michael reveal scene uh, was supposed to be a lot longer. According to Damon and Carlton, the scene where Hurley and Sawyer find out about Michael's betrayal was meant to be much longer, but time was running short, so they had to cut a full page of script. Originally, Sawyer was also going to want to go back with Hurley, thinking it was stupid to help Michael after what he did. Uh, the uh, Lindelof and Q say they still wish that they had uh, handled the feelings of the characters in this scene differently. Um, so that is uh, that is one regret that is on the board from Lindelof and Q's is that that scene wasn't as emotional as they wanted it to be. Which is odd to me, because I feel like that scene is plenty emotional. I, you know, right. I, I think it ends up working. Yeah, and I think maybe, maybe what they're some more so alluding to is, like, the fallout from that. You know, we, we really don't... I'm pretty sure with the, with the Forest Expedition crew, the next scene we get is them discovering the pneumatic tubes, right? We don't have right. any other conversations of Hurley being like, yeah, so you killed my girlfriend. Can we talk about that for a second? Sure. And I wonder how Sawyer would have taken to Jack's pleas of like, no, we have a plan, you have to stick with it. Because again, the weird stuff going on with Sawyer and Jack, Sawyer did just tell Jack that he was the closest thing he had to a friend here on the island, but I wonder how much trust Sawyer would indeed have in Jack uh, for, you know, going along with this plan and having a better idea. But he's his only friend. Yeah, exactly. I guess he has to rely on him no matter what. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Apparently the final scene to this episode was going to be different, and unfortunately for you, Mike, uh, unfortunately for you, you're wrong. Uh, it was not that they uh, were going to axe the Charlie scene, I don't think. It is, Darn it. It is that the snow globe scene was going to be different. Um, not much is known exactly about what it involved, but the final scene of the show in which Penny finds out about the electromagnetic incident, it was originally completely different. Promotional stills released for the episode show a character played by actor A.L. Podell taking a phone call on the yellow phone before going into Penny's lavish corporate office where Penny is among several other people to give her the news. Uh, It remains unknown why refilming 
occurred. Um, mm. So I guess we were going to see like Penny in like the con. I I would I could hazard a guess as to why they would want to do that differently um, rather than have uh, the guys in the Globe appear in a corporate office. What the what the weirdness and the oddity of the final scene of the episode buys lost is a summer of us being like, are they in a snow globe? Yeah. There's definitely something about the stark image of them cutting from the black night sky yes. to the harsh white winter, yes. uh, the thing-esque of this Antarctic and uh, research That's station. very visually on point with the show of light and dark, right. black and white, and, and to like have that contrast. I mean, it's, it's funny uh, that in, in a way, in sort of like the book ending of Lost... Uh, the, both the season two and season five finales are similar in that regard, right? Of, mm-hmm. of black flashing to white. Uh, you know, it's different context. It's the black night sky flashing to a blizzard here in season two. Uh, and it's, uh, it's the black lost logo, like the black backdrop with the white font um, mm. getting sideswiped by the fact that that is now a blinding white light with black font. Um, so I, I think that that is, you know, it, the color, uh, the color theorying, uh, that that people love uh, about television and watching fiction um, is is very present in that regard here. I think to see either of these guys reporting directly in person to Penny would have taken us out of the strangeness of the moment. Um, and I think another thing that it buys us is um, Penny being revealed in this really out of context way. You don't know who's getting the phone call. You could start right. very uh, like as it's basically like too late because the reveal is going to come, you start piecing together, oh my god, it's someone connected to Desmond because it's the Desmond and Penny picture on the nightstand. You're like, oh, is that? Oh, it is! You know? And so that's, those are all exciting reveals that I think a corporate boardroom would have been pretty boring. Yeah, the only thing I would say that this might do is really set up the Winmore stuff that we're going to get into uh, with the McCutcheon whiskey of it all. This idea of, like, we know nothing about Penny. This would at least set up that, like, if she's in a boardroom, that it's not even something personal as much as it is like a business venture, yeah. or at least hopefully, uh, considering the people that she's talking to, one of which kind of looks like Matthew Abaddon, actually, uh, that, you know, these these people are somehow linked into this project that Penny is pursuing. That could open up some interesting questions as to like, okay, you know, we'll find out eventually that her father is searching for the island. How much is she linked into that? Is it going to be her boat? But I do agree that if you're not looking ahead at what's to come with that, and you're looking specifically at, like, what will create the most WTF ending possible, having Penny answer the phone with her disorderly nightstand in focus, I think, is, is, a, is a fun way to really leave your jaw hanging open at the end of the finale. Uh, the finales are always designed to leave your jaw hanging open, and as such, in the writer's room... There are code names uh, for mm. uh, for the for the season finales, uh, and the one that is most uh, there are two that I think are are most well known. Uh, the season three finale was internally uh, known as the rattlesnake in the mailbox, uh, mm-hmm. which refers to the fact that the flashbacks that you're accustomed to seeing, the Jack flashback in this episode, is actually the first flash forward that we're now seeing a point in time that exists. After the island, after the first wave of the island, um, Damon and, and Carlton were very upfront about that idea. Uh, they were also then very upfront in their podcasts that season four's finale would have a similar crazy scene, and they called it the frozen donkey wheel. And that was without any context for what the frozen <laughs> donkey wheel is. So they just straight up told you that it was right. called the frozen donkey wheel. No euphemism needed. 
apparently they called the season two finale uh the the final scene the hala uh oh right to our hearts josh you know and this is, a delicious uh, coming out on <laughs> coming out on shabbat as well too so it's very appropriate. a delicious loaf of bread in the jewish community uh which sadly my wife cannot consume because it is filled with eggs mm-hmm. uh i used to make killer challah french toast I have not made it in probably 16 years. Yeah, do you think that's why they use the code name is because like uh, everyone gets toasted by the hatch <laughs> to a certain extent. Yeah. And is most, most prominently used outside of its uh, Sabbath duties in French toast. I think that they end up, um, I, I don't know. Is, is that what you would, would, would hazard the guess for? Because I just don't really know if I have a great read on what the hala stands for as it pertains yeah, to the season I, two the finale. Only thing I, the only other thing I can think about is that I believe hala is prepared as like a braided bread. And maybe it's this idea of like everyone's stories getting more interwoven together with the others. I think I am looking way too much into this idea. Yeah, I don't maybe know. somebody was just hungry on set and saw something at Crafty and decided to call it the hala. But I love it. I All love right. that nickname personally. Yeah, y'all have a couple of weeks before Mike and I get back together if you want to develop your holla theories, holla at us uh, down the hatch at post. You don't call, you don't holla. You don't call, you don't holla. Uh, yeah, now I want holla. Oh my God, such good bread. Right. Um, all right, the beginning of the end for AAA. Uh, so Mr. Echo somehow survives the implosion, as does Locke, as does Desmond. But he's the only one of the three of them that doesn't like, uh, that, that walks away like deeply scathed physically. Yeah. I guess, and they, I, and I I guess, guess that's mostly from just mostly from the explosion, though. I feel like yes. in the actual hatch implosion. Yes, I guess they're all scathed in ways. Locke can't speak for a couple of hours. Uh, Desmond can see time weirdly <laughs> now. Um, he travels through time. Mister Echo is just wrecked. Um, and so, right around this time is when uh, Adewale Akinoye is making his pitch to leave the show. Um, this is from The Great The Hatch, a lost podcast by Sammy Roth and Rosie Murphy um, from their Further Instructions episode in an interview with Gene Higgins from the production of the show. Gene said to them, we had to do some reshoots with Mr. Echo, who really wanted to go home. He showed up with his hair in cornrows, and I'm thinking, you're not getting on a plane today. You have not been released, and I'm sorry about the cornrows, but please go back to makeup and hair because they've got to come out. He was asking us to kill his character off, and we were happy to do so. So the reason for the reshoots was that it took four days just to do all of the electromagnetic scenes during the system failure. Um, mm. Adding that into like all of like the the tight timeline of that finale uh, is, uh, I think, like again, like I think speaks to just how much was in the air for for having to to craft such a complicated episode. So if this is an episode that like missed on a couple of cylinders, um, makes some sense to me. Well, let me let me throw out this question then. Uh, dealing with the finale, do you think they should have killed Echo off here? Because I think that you know when we get to the cost of living, you've sort of convinced me through a couple of clips you've used in previous Echo episodes about how like the that way that he goes out is actually very fitting for the arc of the character, maybe the meta story about you know he and him and Locke essentially switching places. But it always seems so random to me that it's, what, season three, episode five. Yeah. They decide to kill Echo off. If they were somehow able to bring that monster stuff into Live Together, Die Alone, would this be the spot to kill Echo Yeah, but you need another hour, man. Like, you can't, you couldn't, think about everything that's happening in Live Together, Die Alone. Yeah. If you throw the monster in there, we need an additional hour. 
and like already, it is, it is, I, don't, al- I don't think we have any. Go ahead. Al- al- well, already, like so many of the events of the episode feel like kind of thin, like ob- yeah. oddly thin. Like I know you don't love like the the rambly jungle stuff that much. So now think like you have to have a monster scene in there as well, and so like you got to extend that out because that's such an important piece of mythology. I don't think that there's a way to do that without another hour. And is there, is is that going to enhance Live Together, Die Alone, or is it going to um, extend some of the issues uh, some might have with the episode? I I like that Echo dies in season three, episode five. I like that it's kind of random and that you're a little thrown off by the timing. I think Lost does that. Uh, you know, the Shannon death, uh, the Boone death. Uh, these are not like finale episodes. I think that so often a television show waits for its premiere or its finale or its mid-season finale or its mid-season premiere to do a really big thing. I love it when Lost goes off script in that way because it zigs when you are not expecting it to. Um, Another great example of that is the way in which um, Carl and Rousseau just get offed in the season Mm -hmm. four mid-season finale. And then they come back in the very next episode and you're already like very jarred by their deaths. And you're like, all right, well, what's going to happen next? And then they just kill Alex in the very next episode. Uh, and there's still three-ish episodes left to go in the season. So I appreciate that about the show. I think it keeps you on your toes. I think it keeps you unsettled. And I think when you think about most of the deaths in Lost, I think the vast majority of them, of the big ones, actually do take place in these sort of off times that most shows would probably avoid. Um, I think uh, like Charlotte is going to die kind of randomly in the, in like the early going of five. Uh, Faraday dies in the episode in which he's like shown up in a full capacity for the first time mm-hmm. in forever. Uh, it's really like Juliet like dies twice <laughs> in a finale and a premiere. Jack and and a couple of other people will will get it in the finale um, of of the whole show. But like many important characters are going to blow up a couple of episodes before that. Um, I appreciate that about the show. I think that that's part of like uh, it's it's life. You don't get to have like the, the 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 full circle, complete closure, goodbye with people all the time. In fact, rarely. Um, and I I think that the show does a good job of emulating that. So I don't know that I would have wanted Echo to die here in the finale. It may have been a kindness to AAA, but I think it would have been hard to figure out how to do that story well unless he's just like eviscerated in the dynamite explosion, and that feels like a disservice to Mr. Echo. I think what ends up happening to Mr. Echo, I know a lot of people don't agree, but I think that his death really is in character with the full arc of Mr. Echo that we get. And really is in service of the meta story of the show. It's just still so strange to me that the hatch literally implodes. And yes, these some of these three men have sort of ranging injuries, but really they're all relatively okay. Like that is still, and granted, I'm happy about it because we still have, especially Locke and Desmond, they're going to play much larger roles in this show. But it was yes. still always crazy to me that it's like it imploded it did and but and i guess maybe then charlie should have been as nonchalant as he was walking back to the beach it's like i know they're not dead well maybe it's that like everybody got some sort of blessing how about this everybody mm-hmm. got some sort of blessing of the four people that were there inside the hatch uh echo despite his body being eviscerated by explosives was allowed to walk away for a little while 
He's allowed to live and survive the moment. Uh, Locke is able to get his groove back. He has to lose his voice for a couple hours, but he loses his. He gets his groove back. Desmond gets time travel. Yeah, he just has to go into his little uh, his little trippy uh, De- wigwam. De- later Desmond on. gets time travel, and Charlie exudes those sweet, sweet, sweet pheromones that allow Claire to forgive him immediately. <laughs> Um, but it comes at the cost of him having to die in a couple of weeks. Uh, so like, maybe <laughs> that's a fun yeah, would you rather. I think maybe it's like this double edged sword that everybody walks away. That those are the gifts of the hatch. It's like you can live, uh, but not happily. All right. I could you imagine Jacob just being like, God damn it. What are they doing? Okay, God damn fine. It. God damn it, Charlie. <laughs> God damn it. Um, all right. Uh, how about this? Sonia Walger apparently, um, was almost Kate. Uh, in an interview oh. with the Hatch, uh, with with Sammy and Rosie, Sonia Walger appeared on that podcast and said um, that she was one of the last two or three actresses in the running for the role of Kate. Uh, rumors have often surfaced that Sonia was offered the role. However, she says this isn't true. She pulled out before the final read because she was convinced the show would be successful, and she didn't want to move to Hawaii at that point in her career. What? What? Well, I <laughs> okay. get it because if if the if the show. Either way, so if the show is a huge success, uh, then you are living in Hawaii and you are away from your family, you are away from all of these people, like, your life is completely upended. You get to make that call, and Sonya Walger's career was fine at that point. Um, she was on, uh, she was on Sleeper Cell, she was on a bunch of stuff. Uh, like, she's doing fine. Like, she does, I don't think that she needs Lost. Is is my interpretation of Sonya Walger's career at mm. that moment? I do. Would they have to airbrush the freckles on if she played Kate? So that they <laughs> would make sense. I think that they probably just forgo the freckles, or maybe uh, they we get an early blondie nickname from yeah, Sawyer instead of exactly, Juliet. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that that's fine. I think it works. I can't like what happens in this alternate world. Evangeline Lilly is Penny. Like these characters. Oh, I, whoa! I just can't swap that. It's too weird. Yeah, it's Henry and Cusack and Evangeline Lilly would not make as cutesy of a couple. Um, and if, if, if I like, I don't know, it'd have to be a British actress, though, right? Like, it'd be weird to just have American Evangeline Lilly as, as well, Penny she's Winmore. Ca- she's Canadian, so she'd be a Canadian dude. Oh, does British that mean Charles actor. Winmore would have to be Canadian? I like this alternate world where the Widmores are Canadians. <laughs> just, oh, Des- don't drink my whiskey, Desmond. Yeah. Uh, McCutcheon isn't worth it for you, eh? Sorry, Canadians. <laughs> Whoops. We're bad Americans. We suck at everything. Um, um, but that's gonna, right. this is going to be a nice thought experiment, though, because we we have already said that Charles Winmore is the worst. But I'd like to think for, as a thought experiment moving forward, like, what would the Canadian Charles Winmore <laughs> do in this situation? <laughs> you can have some McCutcheon, Desmond, uh, but I'm still not giving you my blessing for, for, for Penny. Um, all right. Uh, let's talk about Kelvin Inman. Uh, this is a, an interesting piece of trivia that so when he's drunk and he's considering turning the failsafe key, um, he sings the national anthem of Iraq. Uh, and mm. in a bit of, a bit of continuity, the anthem that he's singing was the Iraqi national anthem at the time that he served in Iraq. And at the time, he would have made it to the island. However, Iraq's anthem changed before the crash of Oceanic 815. Interesting. Yeah, because I guess the, the invasion of Iraq happened in, I think, like 2003. So it would make sense that, you know, he has, he's not updated on the times. Yeah, I was wondering what that song was that he was humming. I wasn't sure if it was some sort of army song but that's another great connection back to his initial appearance in one of them when he was joe inman now what if kelvin inman was canadian and he was singing oh canada <laughs> uh i would love that uh i think it makes sense for everyone in desmond's life now to be canadian oh no we well we decided though with the inman right the inman theory that kelvin and joe are twins and that kelvin actually never did meet saeed 
I believe that's right. Although on the Lost podcast, May 26, 2006, Damon and Carlton uh, defend the Inman gate. So yes, uh, when Inman was first introduced, he was uh, announced as Joe Inman uh, for, for one of them, the episode where he, he debuts. But Desmond name checks a guy named Kelvin in orientation. Damon and Carlton decided that they were going to go back. Uh, they were going to bring Desmond back for the finale and show that flashback. And they decided they wanted to see Kelvin earlier in the show without cluing viewers into the fact that he was the same man who was with Desmond in the hatch. So that's why they called him Joe Inman instead of Kelvin Inman. Um, this is one of those moments where if I had Rob's taboo buzzer, I'd honk it. I feel like this is uh, this is uh, revisionist history. Yeah, I still think the Inman theory makes the most sense, that there happens to be two Inman guys that look the Inman brothers. One went into the army, the other maybe uh, failed or out of the army, or he was like uh, dishonorably discharged. He's like, screw it, I'm going to join the Dharma Initiative. Namaste, I'm becoming a hippie on this island. Uh, but as a result, he found the menial work there and slowly went insane. Um, I don't know why, if that was going to be the plan, I think it would have been exciting uh, to find out that Saeed was hanging out with Kelvin. Yeah, I don't know why they needed to do like a code name for Joe, like Hala Kelvin. Uh, I, I don't understand why they had to say, oh, this is the guy that you met, you know, 10 weeks ago that had a role in a flashback episode. But that's about it. But we gave him a different name so you wouldn't know. Yeah, I would have been I would have been pretty hyped. It was like, oh, Saeed's interacting with a guy who's going to be in the hatch. Uh, this is cool, and yeah. it's Clancy Brown. Yeah, that's why Men of Science, Man of Faith is such an interesting episode, right? Because the guy that de- that Jack was interacting with in a flashback ends up in the hatch as well. I feel like there could have been some symmetry there. All right, let's get into some feedback from the hatchlings. Dallin Servo wants to know uh, our mutual friend. Uh, Dallin <laughs> says, what would you want to be the last thing you read or watch before you die? I think for me, it's Watership Down, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> that would make you just feel like it's less about the enjoyment and more so like, I really got I really well, to get to that. I'm really now afraid to read Watership Down. What's going to happen to me? Yeah, I mean, listen, If I think if Desmond had Watership Down as his last book, it would make a lot of sense as to what happened when the boat went down. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's just very poetic. <laughs> yeah, uh, That's a good question. I don't know. I, it's sort of like the question about, like, what would you want to eat as your last meal on death row? Like, I want something comforting. So I'd probably want to be like, I don't know, if there's a classic Simpsons marathon on, I'd probably want to check that out before I end up, <laughs> you know, parting ways with my body. Yeah. Uh, I think that that works. I'm trying to think of what I would actually want. I think Lost. That, I think that makes sense. I would want to watch the finale of Lost. Yeah. I would like to close my eyes as Jack closes his. That sounds beautiful. Yeah. Either that or read uh, the annotated works of Calvin and Hobbes. Just, <laughs> just pouring through those little four panel strips for days. Uh, Kelvin and Hobbes. Oh, no. Um, oh, no, he's in there, too. More from Dallin Cerevo. Uh, we know how close Charles Widmore and Eloise Hawking are. Was the race around the world created by Charles Widmore to ensure that Desmond got to the island? Furthermore, Mike, uh, the great Ben behind the curtain posits, if that's the case, was every horrible thing that Widmore ever did to Desmond just in service of getting him to the island? And I would posit, Mike, if we're taking all of that, is Widmore actually, for whatever reason, like not the worst guy as it pertains to Desmond? So I have, I have several theories behind this. First, I like this idea that, again, he is so thirsty to find the island that I wonder how much the race path like got into the Fijian territories. And like he hoped that one of these people who entered the race would eventually find it. And he like cast the net wide by saying, yeah, go have a race and we'll have, you know, 10,000 people 
get a chance of finding the island. I mean, if if that's the case, if he really wanted to use Desmond to be able to find the island, why not, like, I don't know, bring him in close? Why not do, like, a Mr. Pig thing, where you bring Desmond into the family and almost, like, extort him into beat doing the race? You know, why use, like, reverse psychology against him, of purposely treating him like bullcrap, so that he'll enter the race, then find the island, and then you can locate him? Yeah, I suppose, but it's it's sort of like the, the tough love that um, Eloise Hawking... Uh, pushes upon Daniel Faraday, right? I feel bad calling that tough love. That's just tough. Yeah, I mean, when you shoot your kid to complete the timeline, that's <laughs> yeah, the definition yeah. of tough love, I would say. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I don't know. We're, I, I think uh, bending over backwards to try and make Widmore a cool dude. Uh, not <laughs> not really worth doing. Um, let's talk more about Desmond. Uh, Eric Divestein writes, please help me make sense of Desmond's choices. How is winning the race going to get his honor back? Why is he so determined to complete the race before he can be with Penny? Um, Phoebe Nugent adds, One of my least favorite tropes in Lost is when the characters don't tell another character the truth, even though it would make them happy. Why doesn't Desmond tell Penny that he wrote to her? So we've got some questions about Desmond's decision making here in this episode of Lost. Yeah, I mean, it's it, what Phoebe is alluding to is is very interesting. Where Phoebe, uh, Phoebe Penny asks Desmond, "Why didn't you write to me?" And Desmond oh, just follows up with the memorable line reading, "When you go to marry Pen." But it is a legitimate question. He could have very easily said, "Hey, I wrote letters, but your dad like bogarted them." Maybe it's sort of like again a Sun Jin thing where he doesn't want her to, you know, have a negative image of her father, so he's going to keep as much under wraps as possible. The more I'm talking now, that actually, the more that makes sense, right? Because mm-hmm. if this is a guy that is an, indeed concentrated on honor, however erroneously directed it may be, it would make sense for him to be like, listen, I hate Charles Winmore, but I would crush Penny's world if I told her how much of a cad her dad was. Uh, Stefan Johnson asks us which Desmond we prefer, uh, the clean-cut Desmond or the shaggy-haired Desmond. I really think Henry and Cusick cleans up real good. He cleans so up I, nice! I personally think, and we're also going to see him clear-cut, I think we're going to see clean-cut Desmond in basically all the Desmond flashbacks, right? Like, the shaggy look is basically from the island. Yeah. So I, I personally like clean-cut Desmond because it reminds me of maybe a happier time. <laughs> uh, or at least a less insane time for Desmond Hume. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. I I like the I like the I like it as sort of like flashback Desmond uh with the with the short hair. I think it's a good look yeah, for him. Yeah, and listen, it's a, considering that we started the season with a terrible Jack Shepard wig, like ending the season on very good short Desmond hair is fantastically night and day. Uh Brendan Fitzpatrick is trying to break our brains. Brendan writes in, "Wait a second. David's middle uh Desmond's middle name is David. What if Desmond is David in the past timeline? David Hume was married to Libby and then he died and she's essentially making it right by giving him his own boat back." Wait, okay. I'm out. I'm out on it. Yeah, I'm out all on right. it. But I mean outright. brain brain outright. breaking confirmed. So then it's Des so Libby lives out her days with Desmond and then says, Well, I guess I gotta go back in time and give this guy the boat so he goes to the island in the first place, even though that leads to me dying in this timeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Also, Desmond and Penny are endgame and there's no world in which Desmond and Yeah, Libby we're not are we're not shipping Desmond with no. any blonde character, Fitzy, okay? Uh, other than Penny with more. Um Zach Brooks asks how can you justify the stupid fake beards? 
uh, for the others. It seems like the show just wrote itself into a corner by having them look rustic and dirty in the season one finale and needed to retcon out of it. John, uh, John Krause, who will be on the podcast next week, adds, So the implication here with the interaction between Tom and B is that they don't like having to wear the costumes and using the fake names. So does Ben just make them do it? Yeah. Absolutely. I think Ben is that is that leader that he's like uh, stressing a, a dress code to these people of like, we want to come across. I mean, look, this look has some some reverberations in Dharma lore, right? This is what the hostiles are wearing, the ones that, you know, helped contribute to the genocide of many people in the Jarma Initiative, so it's not like it just is a random hillbilly look. I can understand why Ben wants to perpetuate this idea of the hostels, and maybe it means if 815 runs into Richard Alpert's camp, they'll be like, oh my god, it's those people that kidnapped Walt, when really they have nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's it's just like continuing where they were. Where they yeah, and I'll, I'll disagree with Zach that it's like, oh, they wrote themselves into a corner, so they had to, to retcon out of it. Like, they could have very easily done it in Ooh and Foul when we see... Uh, the tr- the Lost Boys walking along with the teddy bear being dragged along. It, this did feel like they had something to do with it. Like, it's theater. It's stupid theater because, again, it gets disproven over the course of a, a season. But it just shows, again, how the Dharma... It's a, uh, very emblematic of how the Dharma Initiative really puts up a united front. But we're going to find out in Season 3 just how foundationally cracked the organization is in in and of itself. Zephyr has a suggestion for how the finale's uh, final act could have played out differently. Uh, Would the episode have been improved, Zephyr writes, if the purple sky had happened after Michael and Walt left on the boat, and then when they looked again, the island was gone? So, but that's going to change the whole meaning of the frozen donkey whale, right? Because that was the the whole thing from there's no place like home, is that they look back in the raft and they don't see the island anymore. Uh, I mean, that changes the meaning of everything i think it would be a fun visual i totally agree but i think it also fundamentally affects a big plot point two seasons down the line yeah i think so too i i I think i just think that the season two finale bites off a little bit more than it can properly chew it it swallows everything (laughs) everyone makes it (laughs) nobody chokes (laughs) no heimlich required but i i think it's a big bite that they're taking in the finale and so it like it it's like one of those like swallows that makes your eyes water, uh, mm. you know. It's like one of those. Uh, Lindy Steiner asks us if we had to take the place of any of the main characters in this episode, who would it be? Does Bernard count? <laughs> no, let's limit it to series regulars. Um, if we limit it to series regulars, we should probably be Jin and Son, right? Yeah, I was going to say, like, you don't even need to go aboard on land. And look, the beginning of season three is not going to be great for the Quans, but here, like, actually, specifically Jin, because we don't want to deal with morning sickness, and you're just like, you're on yeah. a boat, this boat is much less dangerous than the other boat, and you just get to have a, a fun little sail around you're the sailing. island with, you're breaking, with, your wife, with your wife and a, and a good guy. Breaking up the monotony. What a, nice, yeah, exactly. what a nice thing, you know? You get to break up the monotony, things get, uh, things are great. Uh, yeah, you're so gonna I, have a you're gonna have a child soon. Like everything's yeah. looking up for Jin Quan right now. I guess Claire too. You know, Claire almost, Claire almost gets hit by a door. That's true. Um, but she and then, and then she also get, and then she also gets Nookie from a very seedy individual. She does indeed. All right. Uh, John Krause says he's been trying for 14 years. He still does not hear the Hurley bird saying the word Hurley. I feel like I heard it more in Exodus than I did here in Live Together Dialogue, which is weird because you would imagine that the second version is trying to be much more pronounced than the first one. But for some reason, 
I can only hear it the first instance, not the second. Uh, Jim Fells requested a poll about what Saeed should have found more disquieting. Uh, 63% of voters say that the fact that the statue has four toes is more disquieting. Only 37% say it's that the rest of the statue is missing. I would agree with that, actually, because I was thinking about that poll as well that the Ben Behind the Curtain put out on Twitter. My assumption would be, like, if this indeed was an ancient statue that I think just due to erosion or wear and tear or hell, maybe even other things crashing into it, that the statue would probably be destroyed. But the fact that it having four toes seems to be an adamant choice upon the sculptor is a little bit of a weirder thing than just the natural thing that might happen to a statue after hundreds of years. All right, this one will will make you happy. This is from Matt Overby, who is channeling... Uh, Matt is channeling his inner Mike Bloom here with this piece of feedback. <laughs> oh, good luck. The scene between Charlie and Claire on the beach has long been my least favorite scene on the entire show. Wow. Claire taking Charlie back after all we've seen this season. It's just lazy writing. He assaulted son, damn it. But what drives me crazy is Charlie's nonchalant attitude as to what just happened at the Swan. He comes stumbling out of the jungle after a massive event that everyone on the island witnessed. And then when Claire questions him, he just makes stupid jokes and nothing happened. Dude, for all you know, Echo Lock and Desmond just died. Yeah, I uh, I forget if we talked about that in my blind rage about that scene, but I don't love that Charlie, again, is just so, like, super jokey Charlie, and Claire, le- Claire legitimately has to be, like, the lampshade here and say, uh, yeah, like, don't joke about this stuff. Three people could be dead, and you might have severe brain damage because of this. And maybe it's it's Charlie sort of dealing with recuperation and trauma in his own way, but... Preach, Matt Overby. All the snaps in the world from my perspective. I don't know if I'd call it my least favorite scene in the entire show, mainly because I don't have all the scenes at front of mind, but it's definitely my least favorite in recent memory. Ben Martell disagrees with your take on the final, final scene from the episode. This is from Ben. I have to disagree with Mike on the final scene. It feels to me like it's a critical part of the season three DNA the whole time. It's always on the mind. Season three dials up the need for rescue, especially after DOC, which is the episode where we find out um, uh, that son conceived uh, on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, after two seasons of telling us rescue is unlikely, this scene creates the belief that we need that, uh, that, that rescue could come. Uh, when Na- Naomi lands on the island, it fits with what you know, and you don't suspect for a second that the boat she comes from is not Penny's boat. I agree with you to a certain extent, Ben, behind the curtain. I'm going to disagree that it feels like rescue is always on the mind. And I feel like that's that's a, a knock against, again, the first six episodes of season three is that they feel unfocused in that. And as I mentioned on the podcast, you end with this big prospect of like, oh, someone might be coming for them. And it's not addressed at all for a good portion of time. And again, maybe if they had a better plan of how they, about how they wanted to sketch out season three in general, that would have been introduced more early on. Maybe not in the form of Naomi, but maybe in other aspects. It just felt like that thing while such a big key part of the latter half of the season i would not personally say is really at the forefront of my mind as a lost viewer as i'm checking out what's going on in the beginning of season three let's talk specific characters we're, we're working our way towards the mvps and lvps and there's a few characters that we were asked to to contemplate i want to contemplate those characters and then if there's anyone else you want to add to the conversation before we get into the mvps lvps let's do that although i think that that can springboard us too um but ben martell writes Kate really floundered in season two's storytelling. Why do you think that is? Is it partly because they weren't satisfied with how her backstory was playing out and her centric episodes hadn't been well-received in the first season? Um, 
I have a similar question because Kate was such a Kate was the MVP front runner for so long in in season mm-hmm. one with with Saeed right alongside her before ultimately pulling ahead. Um, Kate has really not been in contention for that status at all this season. I don't think she's finishing in the red, uh, but she's you know not making a huge mark. What happened? So I have two a two pronged answer for this. First is the hatch. I think that the plot device of the hatch really propelled the John versus Locke of it all to the forefront. And so it was less about, you know, Kate working alongside Jack and sort of serving as a mediator between the two. Kate sort of became like the the come with girl, you know, and even if she was not allowed to come with, she still came with. She got uh, taken by the others after sneaking behind. She got caught in a net like this was not a great season for Kate. And I wonder if it's because when asked what does Kate have to do with the hatch, everyone just kind of threw up their shoulders and shrugged. And when the main plot device of the season is not focused around that character, or at least doesn't allow the character to do interesting things with it, that character is unfortunately going to be shoved into some very weird places, especially compared to season one. And this might be a bit of a hot take, but I feel like bringing on Anna Lucia in season two was very detrimental to Kate. Because uh, I think that even though Anna is a demonstrably different character, I do feel like there is some similar space that Kate occupied as well, especially with this concept of being a, a woman in charge. This idea of what is it like to you know be an underestimated woman and be in charge of a group when it comes to survival. That was a big focus of Kate in season one. We We talked about how in a different world in the pilot where Michael Keaton is Jack, he dies out and Kate becomes the leader of the group. That sort of bore out a little bit in the Anna Lucia character. And I think as a result, Kate sort of got shunted away from some of the more survivalist stories and more sort of towards the romantic stories. I think the story of Kate in season two is they way pumped up the love triangle of it all. And it's going to get more complicated with the addition of Juliet next season. But that's been my big takeaway from Kate. And it unfortunately reflects itself in the points is that, you know, this, this badass tracker, you know, fugitive had less to do action-wise in season two and more to do from the drama and romantic aspects. Uh, It's interesting. You bring up Anna Lucia. Uh, April, who is uh, one of the great Down the Hatchlings, uh, says that Dan Sinensky, a great member of the RHAP community, uh, Dan is making his way through Lost for the first time, so he's banned from listening to Down the Hatch until he's finished the show. Uh, Hello, Dan, when you finally stumble upon this. Hi, Dan. Uh, He's at the beginning of season two right now and sent April the following observation about Anna Lucia that April thought was pretty good and wanted to send it on his behalf. So this is Dan's take on Anna Lucia. Anna Lucia is what happens when you let a Sawyer slash Saeed combo be in charge and also Mm. when you get attacked by the others immediately. She has Sawyer's self-preservation instinct and Saeed's tunnel vision on a task over people as opposed to Jack's focus on health and safety. Ooh, Soyed as a person. We ship it. Yeah. I thought that was cool. I thought that was great. Um, this is from Dave Baker. Um, why was Michael chosen as the villain from Flight 815 uh, of all of those passengers? Who else could have or should have filled that role? I don't think that there's a better pick than Michael. Yeah, I don't, I'm I don't trying think, to think I don't like, think that there is because of what Michael has at stake. And I think because of what Michael has yeah. at stake, because that was so traumatizing to him as a character and to us as an audience, and we're spending so much of the season wondering how they're going to reconcile that story, the fact that they can kind of trade on that goodwill that is built up by a father losing his son, by this man who we love losing this child that we love, and reuniting with him through hellish, nightmarish circumstances is very clever to me. 
and I think yeah. speaks to the danger of the island in the show. And I don't know who they could heel turn in a way that would have worked anywhere near that level because Michael has never put forth any reason for us to believe that he would have been capable of doing what he did and what he does. But it, it makes a lot of sense in the context of him being like food and sleep and energy deprived and deprived of his son for as long as he's been deprived of him and having lost him in this tremendously awful way, having, you know, lived the last like decade or so of his life, regretting the loss of him as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, I just yeah. who who like Hurley making a heel turn like that's just mm-hmm. not going to play. They tried to no. do it with Charlie. It didn't that's work the so thing, great. Is that- well, you could say maybe Charlie or Sawyer because they did demonstrably bad things on the season. But it feels like, like you said, the reason why Michael did it is so tantamount above everybody else. The only other possibility I could think of would be if one of the Quans got taken by the others and the other Quan did the heel turn. But the thing is, we see from various Quan flashbacks that these two are certainly capable of doing maybe some some less than godly things. Uh, in their real lives. Michael, like you said, the two flashbacks we saw, Michael, like, the most negativity we saw from him was him, like, complaining about the fact that he never got to see his son from, you know, the the devil incarnate herself, Susan. It's not like we saw any shades of Michael that was like, wow, Michael really has this problem. It was more so that he had struggles in trying to reach across the aisle to this boy that he hardly knows but is blood-related to him. So I agree. I think I think this heel turn makes a lot of sense. And I think as much as people might malign, you know, him departing the series so early, I think his departure makes a lot of sense as well. It goes back to what you said about Lost having the opportunity to drop the trap door on us, that this character that was such an integral part, two characters that were such an integral part of the episode, of the Caesar series from the get-go are now going to be off, assumingly forever. The only other person that I can think of, uh, of, like, the main cast that would work, because I, I think that, like, yeah, Jin, like, beat the shit out of people uh, at, at, at best, you know, for Mr. Pake. So, like, yeah. if he, like, got captured or son got captured and he did something drastic to save her, like, I think that's very in character and, and not completely unexpected. I think what Michael does plus, is so well, unexpected. Plus, I think that, yeah, and I think the Jin redemption tour was, like, something they've been really working towards the entire couple seasons. I wouldn't say that him making the heel turn undermines that, but it would feel like a bit of a reversal, which... Listen, season two had di- had did that a couple times as we outlined over the course of the episodes, but it would feel weird to have build up Jin as like this relatively good natured guy who had to do things that he had to do, have him you know become this good person on the island, and then immediately go back on that when it find- he finds out that his wife is in danger. I, th- I think two people come to mind that could possibly fit this because Lost does it with them eventually. They briefly do this with Jack. They briefly do this mm. with Jack when he is gone from the show for a good little while. And the next time you see him, he's throwing the football. He's throwing the pigskin with Mr. (laughs) Friendly. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think that they can get away with Jack being gone from the show for nearly the stretch of time that they can get away with it with Michael. And it would be veering us wildly off course from what the show is trying to do. Um, Right. But he is at this point. Yeah, he's an asshole, but he's mostly like lawful good. Right. So like that would be a surprise. The other person and it's funny because we've got this piece of feedback from Matt McGee. I thought season five was the season that Claire was not in. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was thinking about it. If, if, we, if we bumped up like crazy squirrel baby Claire, yeah. like a couple of seasons. Yeah, like is she like, is there like a plot twist in maternity leave where like someone does like the winter soldier thing to her at the end of the episode? And she under who's Claire yeah, and she like underwent some sort of 
like some like brainwashing code words uh, that can be used to to like activate her as a sleeper agent for the others. Like maybe that would be shocking if like maternity leave was effectively in the two for the road spot and Claire yeah. murders Anna Lucy and Libby. Like that would be shocking. Um, or if Claire murders Charlie yes, to like, yes. I don't know, for some reason, like that would be probably the biggest heel turn, right? Would be despite sort of being on the rocks, if Claire is somehow conditioned, maybe Ben, I don't know, triggers Claire in that moment to have her kill Charlie and, and help him escape. But that would also show, I think, less agency on Claire's part, unlike Michael, who, again, has this delicious rationale as to why he does what he does and it's more so okay ben knows that claire is essentially under his thumb and now he's controlling her though it it is interesting you know i i think we're gonna have to track starting in season four why they chose to do with claire what they did as i mentioned i didn't mind maternity leave that much outside of the garish flashback noises uh so i I would hate to like lose that in honor of having her do we're galaxy braining right now you know like we're microdosing some hallucinogens and trying to come up with better (laughs) ideas than lost and they're not the michael idea was the right idea for sure um this is from beth mcleod who who says i've watched lost countless times including the original run and each time i find something new and on this rewatch i have found a correlation between desmond and Locke and fathers Desmond puts his relationship with Penny on hold because he feels it's more important to prove to her father that he's worthy of her love. John sacrifices his relationship with Helen because he can't give up his obsession with his own father or stop seeking his approval. That's a really interesting thing. I mean, it goes back to this idea of all the worst daddies, right? That's sort of a, not even just a connection between Desmond and Locke, but almost a connection between everybody and their fathers. You know, you could argue that even Jack sort of puts his relationship on hold in a certain way and that he's more devoted to his work. And that's partially because I think he wants to prove himself to his father too. And so I think that's a fun little through line for all these characters. Granted, Desmond's not going to have that many opportunities to interact with characters like Locke and Jack, where you can see those parallels play out. But I think it's like a call out by Beth. Uh, I think that's good as well. All right, let's talk about the MVP LVPs. And let's give a huge shout out to Stefan Johnson. We will uh, post the links to all of this in the show notes. Stefan Johnson came up with like a visual guide to the MVP LVP yeah, standings. That, that fun, that fun little thing that the, the kids are doing nowadays of like bar charts that are tracked over time as to how people are doing. So it really is like a real time source as to how these characters rose and fell over the course of two seasons. Yeah. So there's there's like the static graph. There's some videos that are bar chart races. We are linking to that in the show notes. Seek that stuff out. Very, very, very fun to watch and helpful as we are going to be chewing on lots of numbers here. The numbers are good. The numbers are not so great for everybody. Uh, It should be noted that Charlie uh, not only did really poorly in season two, but he hasn't had an MVP point since the greater good. Not a single MVP point for Charlie in season two. Uh, That's wild. Um, wow. the, ma- the man in black slash smoke monster and Helen both currently have more points than John Locke. Um, okay. Of the, of the main characters, only Charlie, Michael, and Sawyer have been in both the positives and the negatives. Um, those I feel are like that makes sense. Interesting takeaways. Um, Stefan's calculated which characters have been given the most points, positive and negative combined. Six characters have been given more than 20 points overall. So we're talking about both like positive. Absolute value. Yes. So Locke has received 34 points overall. Wow. Sawyer has been awarded 27 points overall. Kate has had 24 points overall. Saeed has 23. The number is good. Uh, points. Nice. Uh, Jack, 22. And Michael, 20. 
Echo's 15 points are the most for any character that has only received positive points. I'm I'm very interested that Michael's up there, especially over a character like Charlie. Maybe it's because he just had so much to do in the beginning and end of season two that he was really at the forefront. But for someone who was out for, you know, a third of the season, I'm surprised he ended up making the top five, baby. So let's just give you uh, a little bit of an overview of where things stand for season two specifically. Uh, we'll give you we'll give you the top three. Uh, let's go top four, actually, uh, right. in honor of the numbers. Uh, which actually means we've got five people to talk about because one of the placements is a tie. Uh, in fourth, uh, fourth MVP of the season with five points to his name. Uh, and he has, he has only the one name so far, but we will find out his name as soon as the season three premiere. The artist formerly known as Henry Gale, Benjamin Linus, and his limited time wow. on Lost is already in this elite stratosphere for season two. Five points for Ben. Wow, and I'm pretty sure that he either he like he didn't have any episodes that he appeared in where he didn't get a point. Like he either got a point or he I think he lost a point maybe in Dave for getting caught, but it really just like Ben, it just shows how much of an impression he left that every single episode he appeared in, he got some attention. Yeah, pretty amazing. All right, tied for third place. Uh and this is probably the surprise of the season. In fact, I'll just I'll leapfrog to to first and second. Obviously, Mr. Echo is the MVP of season two. 15 points to his name. Saeed is runner-up, 12 points to his name. Oh, uh, he it got it got close near the end, though. We were talking about since Echo kind of disappears closing, for a while near the end of season two. Closing the gap, that's good. Um, but the third place tie uh is between Jack and Anna Lucia at six points apiece. Wow. And I think Anna Lucia coming out of season two as top three baby is a real surprise to me and a delightful one. Yep. Um, I'm so happy. I mean, I will admit that Anna Lucia is a character that I would not say was completely redeemed in my eyes, but I was so surprised at the writing of her. I think she's remembered as a bit of like a brusque and negative character. But I feel like the writers between Collision, between the other 48 days and between Two for the Road do a really sublime job of sketching what is essentially a broken woman and why she does the things that she does. Not only that, like, she is usually pretty correct in her convictions, right? She is the one to help Saeed interrogate Henry Gale. She is the one who helps Jack uh, try to bring together this short-lived army. So the fact that she was pretty good just as, like, a loyal soldier, on top of the fact that her characterization ended up being more colorful than I think we initially expected, made her the by far the surprise of the season for me. It's her and SOS are essentially the two surprises of season two. All right, here are the bottom four. These are the four LVPs. Uh, in fourth place, with negative four points in a three-way tie, it's Anthony Cooper. Keeps racking them up. Uh, it's mm-hmm. Sabrina Carlisle with one appearance. Oh. And gets knocked with negative four. Uh, and it's Jin's douchey boss, Mr. Kim, uh, from the hotel, who gets negative oh, four. Wow. I well. cannot believe Anson Mount ended up getting beaten out by several people by the end of the season. Uh, two people tied for third place with negative five points, although to call them both people would not be accurate. One is a person. It's Wayne, Kate's biological father, who she blows mm-hmm. to Kingdom Come. She kills him, blows him up. And heroin. Heroin has also <laughs> received negative five points. Uh, and I think this is, uh, I mean, you, you gave a doctor a point a couple of episodes ago because I think the concept of heroin is now officially died. dead on the died. island. 
So this will this will be probably be where it stays at least for some time. I can't remember if it's really embraced <laughs> in season six with Sideways Charlie, but this is where heroin will stay for the time being. Stupid Jason McCormick with negative six uh, is uh, is in second place for the LVP. I, I think that makes sense that Anna Lucia gets positive six, and the man who caused her so much misery is at negative six. And it truly is a suck shaft season for Charlie Pace. He is the LVP oh. of season two with a walloping negative seven for Charlie. Um, wow. that is, that is wild. I knew it would be bad. I didn't know that it would be quite that bad for, for Charlie. Um, and Charlie is in the conversation for the, the LVPs of all of Lost so far through two seasons. Wow. To, to look at that list, Anthony Cooper is anchoring us pretty cleanly with negative eight points. It is then a five-way tie in the second spot between Wayne Randy Nations, Jason McCormick, and the Gawkers, and Heroin. Heroin's in there as well. <laughs> but then uh, the Gawkers, they, yeah, not a lot, not a lot of play from the Gawkers. I think maybe because again, there's less survivalist stuff that we yes. have. We have less shade to throw on the Gawkers. Yes. Then, then there's a, a, a cluster of negative fours of which Charlie is a part. Uh, Charlie is at for the overall series negative four. Susan, Sabrina, Mr. Kim, the others have negative four, and uh, the the psychic Richard Malkin also negative four. Oh yeah, and he got and he got docs and points. I remember from his appearance in Huh. Here's my bold prediction, Josh. Will Charlie rise into the positives by the he end of has, season three? He has to clear five points. He has to get five points and lose none. Um, at like he ha- he has a, a five point threshold he must cross in order to finish in the green. Can he do it? This is a tough question. Mm, I, think I think he can, he can. too. I think he can I think. Too. I mean, I think no matter what greatest hits and through the looking glass are going to get him a decent amount of points. Greatest hits, it's a good chance that he is going to get full MVP points. The qu- uh, yeah, the question is... Where will he be going into that? I don't. I admittedly don't remember too much of Charlie from season three outside of, well, he has the specter of death looming above him, so I don't remember exactly the actions he partakes in. But look, anything is going to be better for Charlie than season two. Uh, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, think, oh, nowhere to cope with so. Well, the other thing is, like, Charlie's going to have other appearances throughout Lost, and, like, the times that he does come back are very nostalgic and good, and mm-hmm. I think that he'll probably get MVP points. Um Although, will we dock him for driving Afterlife Desmond into an ocean, maybe? Uh, I don't know. We'll see. It's going to be a journey for Charlie. Yeah, for sure. sideways Charlie might not be great. <laughs> Let's give you the top four through season two. Uh, in fourth place, the number is good. Uh, Hugo Hurley Reyes is there with 11 points. Just above him is Dr. Jack Shepard with 12 points. Then the season two MVP winner, Mr. Echo, with 15 points. And Saeed Jarrah, who was right behind Echo for season two, is still our leader overall with a very comfortable lead of 21 points. Because wow. he's got 21 points. Mr. Echo has 15. Dude's about to die. I don't yep. know if he's going to collect any more points along the way. Uh, he may lose some. Possible. Uh, along the way. Um yeah, he uh, he lost that game to Hurley when her when they visit the Santa Rosa medical facility. You know, so the so the next closest person to Saeed, once we take Echo off the board, is going to be Jack at 12 to Saeed's 21. I think Saeed is going to be our series MVP, and I don't think it's going to be close. That is an early prediction as we still have a mm. year plus on the podcast, but I think Saeed is going to finish this thing out as the decisive MVP of Lost. I'll be very intrigued not to get too much into our season three preview because I know that's coming up later in the podcast. I'll be intrigued to see where Jack lands because I think that, again, Jack is sort of connotated to one of the most maligned 
storylines and flashbacks in Lost history. But I feel like, uh, you know, if, when he takes the reins again as leader of his group, I feel like it is worthy of some points. So he's another person I'll be, I'll be very intrigued to see when the points wash out at the end of season three, how much better he'll do than the 12 he has currently. Um, and our, and our, our girl Kate Austin, uh, is just knocking on the door of those MVP points. She's in the number five spot with 10, just beneath Hurley's 11, just beneath Jack's 12. Um, so she's still in there. She's still in contention. She's got, uh, you know, a couple of points ahead of, uh, Jin and Sun, who have 7.5 apiece because we gave them a half point each at one point in time. Just kind of sucks that, uh, for everybody else that the Quans have that cheat available to them, but what are you going to do? I mean, we could have done that for Michael and Walt to a certain perspective, but that didn't sure, happen. Sure, sure. Um, so I don't know. I, I do think it's likely that Kate's highs in this department are behind her would be my Mm. bet. I think Kate, I don't think Kate's ever going to go negative, but, um, I don't know that she'll ever clear 20. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. I don't know. Again, the Hydra stuff, like she helps take the initiative to, to escape and all that. I think it just depends on how is she viewed in that first little bit of the season and how, and how will that bear out? I guess one of her romantic partners Sawyer has had an interesting season as well, because I think Sawyer is, what, only at a, at a couple of points, but he's had a good, like, he's had a pretty positive season, especially compared to season one, even in the long con. Like, we were so uh, impressed by what he was able to do that yes. we couldn't really document anything. Correct, correct. All right, uh, Mike, last time we did a season feedback show, uh, you talked about, like, your eras of seasons uh, on, on Lost. Mm. Um, talk to me about that as it pertains to season two. Yeah, so as I talked about last time, I sort of tried to designate certain parts of season one into certain eras to say, okay, are there like distinctive periods of the season that we can sort of uh, revolve around in terms of writing, in terms of episode structure? And suffice it to say, the season two eras, at least from my own connotations, are significantly less complicated than the season one eras. Like, I think... No, uh, there. every era in season two here is at least three episodes. There's not going to be, like, two episodes that just sort of seem out of nowhere. So it seems like season two, while maybe more complex with the plot, I think, in my opinion, maybe went a bit more simplistic with the structure and really organizing the season into little compact pods. So here are my eras. Uh, feel free to agree or disagree if you're making your own little timeline here. So, starting from the beginning, I have the first era is from Man of Science, Man of Faith to Orientation. This probably makes the most sense. The first three episodes, we've talked many times about how if you binge them all together almost, it seems like, you know, it it sort of becomes its own lost movie. I call it post-Exodus because it really is just sort of a reconciliation between the raft and the hatch of everything that happened right after the Exodus cliffhanger and essentially bringing us into the new normal of season two. Then a big stretch from Everybody Hates Hugo all the way up to Collision, episodes four through eight, I call the Tailies era. This is a section where at least some of the episode, if not all of it, is dedicated to this other group that we just met. Everybody Hates Hugo is when everyone decides to start coming out of the pit, and we finally meet the Tailies. The Tailies get their own episode, and I feel like it it ends not with the other 48 days, but actually with Collision, because that's the first one that really focuses on a Tailie and Anna Lucia, And it also ends with the reconciliation of the two parties on the beach. After that, what Kate did to the long con, I'm calling Things Get Dark in a very number of ways. Episodes 9 through 13, where we find out a lot of dark, depressing things like what Kate did exactly. Uh, We get, you know, the, the threat coming from Mr. Friendly. 
Charlie and Sawyer both do some very bad things. Uh, we find out some dark stuff about Mr. Echo and his past. So it feels like this is an era that sort of is surrounded in bad things that the characters did and bad things we find out about them slash bad things happening to them. The biggest chunk by far, super easy designation, episode 14, one of them to two for the road is the Henry Gale era. Every episode, Henry Gale slash Ben Linus plays a part in in some perspective. He is one of the focal points of the episodes, though they vary in quality heavily. The fact that he is a common denominator in the episodes made it very easy to, to designate an era from my perspective. And, you know, previously I put Exodus in its own category from The Greater Good and Born to Run. But you brought this up the past couple of weeks. I really do feel like Question Mark 2 Live Together Die Alone is almost its own group of three episodes to mirror the first three episodes of the season. So I called that era the end of the hatch, where between finding out the Pearl Station, finding out about Michael's motives, and then everything coming to a head and live together, die alone. It does feel like everything kind of coalesces uh, around a few subjects after the shocker of Two for the Road. So yeah, only five eras of season two, but I think it's because maybe they're grouping episodes together it's a under five act play. Yeah, they're, and they're grouping themes together under larger themes maybe than they did in season one. I think this makes more sense. Um, I, I like that. I think that that all, that all works. And I think that that is a good segue into doing our final accounting of season two and the episode rankings. And I want to add that I know, Mike, you've done some, some tweaking. You teased yes. that you were going to tweak some of your scores. So you've gone back through time. You've time traveled. I see that you've tweaked uh, three episodes from season two. You tweaked your whole truth score. You pulled that tooth. Uh, you tweaked your collision score and you tweaked your man of science, man of faith score. Yes. Yeah, so let me do some more fun little homework uh, as I present it to the class. Josh, I came up with in my spare time, in my opinion, my lost grading rubric, a bloom brick, if you were, as to really trying to figure out after two seasons, like what, what, why do I designate stuff certain scores? And so let me quickly run down uh, what I did here, because this is going to hopefully inform the rest of my rankings in perpetuity, because I was really inspired, Josh, by you. When talking about 4.2 episodes, you say, like, this is a perfect episode of Lost. And that really got me thinking as to, like, how do I define a perfect episode of Lost? And if I use that as sort of a watermark, what's going to determine everything from the way down? So again, your mileage may vary as to how, if you want to use this, if you don't, but this is how I'm going to grade from here on out so people can take me to task. 4.2, again, perfect episode of Lost. It's firing on all cylinders. There are no real weak points. You really can't quibble with any scene. Every scene feels either good or essential to the story of the episode. A 4 or a 4.1 is a near-perfect episode of Lost. Uh, it has one or two things that might be like meh or a little bit weaker, but for the most part, it is super duper strong. 3.7 to 3.9 is an awesome episode of Lost. Uh, it has one or two major things that are meh or weak, like a character or maybe a plot point, more so than just random little nitpicks. 3.3 to 3.6 is a great episode of Lost. There are a lot of great stuff in it, but it's not enough to really put it in those top three categories. 3.0 to 3.2 is a good episode of Lost. There's more good than bad, but there's really not a lot of outstanding moments. Uh, 2.5 to 2.9 is a below average episode of Lost. There, It has like a couple of fun redeeming moments, but there are a lot of misses or not-so-good things that happen. 
2.0 to 2.4 is a dud episode of Lost where there's a couple of good things, but it's really few and far between. And anything less than a 2, in my opinion, is a bad episode of Lost. Nearly all of it doesn't work. You have to nitpick to find good things as opposed to a 4.0 or a 4.1 where you have to nitpick to find bad things. That being said, I adjusted several scores, as you mentioned. Actually, I went back to season one, and I took an episode, House of the Rising Sun, episode six, Josh, and I bumped it up from a 3.8 to a 3.9. I I think this is an awesome episode of Lost, and I think it's right near that near-perfect tier. So I bumped that up. Man of Science, Man of Faith, I previously had as a 4.2. I bumped it down to a 4.1, because I did realize in retrospect, while the Walt stuff is creepy... The fact that it doesn't necessarily bear out terribly much in the history of the show earns a little bit of consternation. Collision I brought down from a 3.6 to a 3.5, and the whole tooth I brought down from a 3.3 to a 3.2. Now, none of that seems to majorly reflect on anything, with one big exception, which we'll get into, but this is now going to be posted on my wall, a rubric by which I will hopefully be grading all the rest of the rest of the lost episodes during this run here. All right. Well, hopefully you can share your work with the class. I'd love to see that in writing so that we can have that. We could include that in, in some future show notes. Mike Bloom's rubric for grading an episode of Lost. Me, I subscribe to the whatever happened happened rule. I grade it as I watch it and I'm not looking back or altering anything. I respect your decision, Mike. Uh, and I think that you have arced out your rationale. Uh, in a rational way. Um, with all of that being said, let's tell everybody the top 10 from season two. I want to give you the, you know what? In fact, let me just give you the episodes of season two ranked, and then we'll talk yeah. about it in, in the context of season one. Uh, all right, so this is, these are the rankings of season two from worst to first. In last place, it's fire plus water. Pretty handily, <laughs> 1.872. Uh, above it, above it is a drift. Uh, 2.223. I won't give all the scores for everything. Then it's abandoned. Then it's Dave. So that's your bottom four. Then it's what Kate did. It's everybody hates Hugo. It's the whole truth. It's ooh and found. It's maternity leave. Collision. Three minutes. The hunting party. SOS. And then we are in the top 10. It starts with question mark. It goes to the other 48 days. The long con orientation one of them here's your top five baby the 23rd psalm man of science man of faith third is the finale live together die alone second is lockdown and a surprise to me reigning champion of season two number one spot two for the road so now let me put you on the spot josh because i think like something we else we can do as we as we go here is of course you know we're going to give several episodes every season 4.2s let me ask you, Mr. Wiggler, what is your favorite episode of season two? Because you've given 4.2s to Two for the Road, Lockdown, and Man of Science, Man of Faith. But is there one among them that you like the most? Two for the Road. Um, I, I think on this rewatch for sure. And I think what it clarified for me is while I, uh, you're, you're taking a scientific approach to grading Lost. Uh, and for me, it's a lot of feel. Uh, it's, a, it, it's, mm. it's more in the John Locke camp. Um, it is, it, you know, I cannot look at this show objectively. I don't have that in me. This show is part of my DNA. This is, this is the show that I am a rabid fan for. 
Uh, this is like I have I have very swift recall on very stupid things from this show. It is a show where I learn new things about it almost every single time I consider it, whether it is a new thematic observation or it is a concrete piece of information about the production that I never knew. I will live a thousand years and still not know everything about Lost, and I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I felt on this rewatch watching Two for the Road was the episode that reminded me the most of home. It reminded me the Mm. most of what it felt like to be a kid watching the show. It really was between two for the road, lockdown and man of science, man of faith for those spots of what it felt like to go down the hatch and see Desmond, what it felt like to stop down and spend a week looking at the blast door map. And those things compare and compete with, but ultimately fall just slightly short. If I have to only pick one, of that shock moment of Michael killing Anna and Libby and shooting himself and freeing Henry Gale. It's just such a powerful moment. Yeah. It is, it is the whole episode is a really great swan song for Anna Lucia, who's a character that hit harder for me this time um, than she has in the past. Um, I love that two for the road is the number one of season two, according to down the hatch. I think that that's like, I think that that is it's unexpected, but also right. Like two for the road was always going to be high up. But was it going to beat the finale? Was it going to beat the premiere? Would it beat lockdown? The fact that it did and did by like some measure, it's a 4.108 mm-hmm. for two for the road. And then lockdown is a 4.083. These don't sound like huge differences, but it's a meaningful difference com- considering like where we were in that top four, the only ones that were all in the four range. Um, so for two for the road to be like the clear leader here, and look at those numbers, 4.108 for two for the road. Those are lucky numbers or unlucky numbers as it pertains to loss. Yeah. So I love it. I think it's great. I think two for the road being the 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 crown, uh, the jewel on the crown of season two works for me. Let's talk about the overall rankings of the show at this point. And we cannot, we're not going to spend, you know, you can read the show notes. Look at the list. Look at the list. Yeah. We've got this in the show notes. We will have this in the show notes. You can see the full list. But what I would like to read off is the bottom 10 and the top 10 and some observations as a result. Um, the bottom 10 from worst to best of the bottom 10. <laughs> so from 45th to 36th place, it's fire plus water is at the bottom uh, from season two. Then whatever the case may be from season one, then adrift from season two, then born to run from season one, then special from season one, then abandoned from season two. Then Homecoming from season one, The Greater Good from season one, The Moth from season one, and like one of the early clusters of episodes uh, of season one, and Dave from season two. That's four episodes from season two, six episodes from season one, making up the, the bottom 10. And if we were to allot one more space, we would have another episode from season one. Worth noting that yeah. there is a big cluster of episodes beyond that. Uh, that are all from season two. The next, uh, the next five are all from season two. With Tabula Rasa breaking things up before we get another back-to-back season two. Um, See, and that's the thing too is that I think that this it's it's maybe a little mystifying, but it does make sense to me. And that I think something we tracked during season one is that it did not have some great episodes. Like I think it had a solid through line, but there are definitely some episodes that didn't hit. And one impression I did get from season two is while it did also have a couple of duds. There were a lot of, like, again, going back to my rubric, good 
episodes of Lost, right? Like your threes, your 3.2s, your 3.3s. And that sort of supersedes the okayness of those episodes, supersedes episodes like Homecoming and Special and Born to Run and whatever the case may be. So it makes sense that like the low lows of season one sort of fill out the bottom here, whereas a lot of the clustered of the okay episodes of season two end up finishing in that like third quartile. Um, So the top, I would say the top 19 really, uh, really actually the top 18 are all like relatively close. Uh, yeah, they're all three point eight and above. They're all average. they're all three point eight and above. But let's just give the top ten, uh, and it breaks down so that it's five from season two and five from season one, uh, which maybe would have surprised me. What surprises me a little less is that for the most part, the season two episodes are in the bottom half of that ranking. So the tenth best episode of Lost through two seasons, according to the Down the Hatch system, is the twenty third Psalm. Uh, in ninth place, it's Man of Science, Man of Faith. In eighth place, it's Live Together, Die Alone. In seventh place, it's Lockdown. In uh, sixth place, a uh, bit of a surprise. It's Do No Harm. Uh, do No uh, Harm. Boone, Boone has a worse death than Anna Lucia and Libby, according to these rankings. Uh, and then number five is the season two champion, Two for the Road. And that leaves us with a top four that's all from season one as it stands. So the best that season two is going to do is top five, which means it will ultimately move lower, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's a, definitively there's going to be at least a handful of season three episodes that will displace it. There are four season one episodes that must be defeated by seasons uh, moving forward uh, to, to make up this top ten as we go. The top four baby of Lost remain from season one. Deus Ex Machina in fourth. The pilot in third. Walkabout is second. Exodus is the best episode of Lost through two seasons of Lost. And let me also just throw in here, since I was not asked what my favorite episode of season two was, uh, I am a lockdown guy. I, I will just sort of cop what you said about two for the road and, and apply it to lockdown, where I had some some thoughts about what lockdown did, but I really did not remember how much great stuff is in that episode. I loved all the Ben and Locke dynamics. I know people grouse with the flashback, but I feel like it's actually very thematically resonant and I think extremely well done to end the Helen arc. There's obviously the big-ass piece of information with the blast door. I think there is a really great B-plot. I compared a lot to Deus Ex Machina, but the poker game is a really fun detour from everything. And of course, an incredible ending, much like Two for the Road, in Henry Gale finally being exposed. So... I'm happy to have that not only be, you know, in the top 10, but as my favorite episode of season two. And I will also say just for season one, my assumption is you're going to say walkabout and I'm going to say Exodus. Um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I certainly would have said that before. I, I don't know. I watched it and now I'm, I've moved on. So, you know, <laughs> there's a cluster of 4.2s and I, I don't know. I, you know, I put walkabout as number one in my Hollywood Reporter rankings. That's, that, that's why I asked, yes. Uh, and I, I, I have to live and die by the sword, Mike. I have to live and die by what I put out there on the internet. Uh, and what I put out on the internet for MTV was Exodus. What I put out there for the Hollywood Reporter was walkabout. And I'm going to live and die by whatever down the hatch decides for this one. Uh, okay. You know, that's, that's how I'm going to do it. Uh, okay. You know, different points in time, things hit differently. Uh, so I, I can't say I can't say definitively. I, so then you're going. We're going to have to go back around to have you finally figure out your favorite season one episode. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think when we finish uh, the first run of Down the Hatch, we'll probably just watch it again. 
I think that makes sense, and, but specifically, but then it's going to be like, oh no, I forgot to do this thing for season one. Well, I guess we have to turn around and go back we'll, all over we'll again. Do, we'll do shorter podcasts. <laughs> nope. Uh, we'll find uh, so You couldn't even get to that sentence with we'll, a straight we'll, face. We'll do something. We'll figure it out. Uh, or we won't. We'll see. We'll see where we're at at the end of the journey, but uh, I think Lost is a show that very clearly uh, rewards multiple rewatches. So Amen. does our rewatch get followed immediately by a rewatch maybe who knows we have no idea let's see how much fun everybody's having by the end of this thing that's you know december 2021 is what we're looking at there uh interesting stats um season one the average ranking uh for an episode was 3.548 for season two a clean 3.5 um average episode surprisingly close yeah yeah i i agree average episode ratings by character uh lock is a 4.079 through two seasons, wow. this is. Uh, Desmond is a 4.069. Not fair. He's only had the that one. doesn't feel fair. <laughs> only had the one. Uh, Jack is a 3.943. I think Jack and Locke being that high is impressive, considering yeah. uh, well, how many they've uh, had. Oh, and also considering where we're going to go, I think we look fondly on these Jack and Locke episodes, which have all, all of their flashback episodes have been at least pretty good. I think, like, the hunting party might be the the worst flashback episode that either one of these two characters have had, but they will get They wait. will get roughed up a little bit. Jack worse than Locke, uh, as far as this goes, I think. Um, Echo with a 3.846, Anna Lucia with a 3.776, Sawyer with a 3.726, and Saeed, who is our MVP, but is sort of like middle pack um, as far as the flashbacks go. Uh, I'll just skip ahead that Kate is uh, bottom three, 2.856 average rating. And that is a pretty steep fall from the person who's above her, which is Hurley with 3.42. Um, the bottom of the barrel, Michael and Charlie, 2.831 uh, for Michael, 2.678 for Charlie. But I think Charlie uh, will have the... Well, I think his stock will definitely rise, at least from this perspective. And Kate's may fall further. So those are the episode rankings, Mike. Um, as we start to close out, uh, we, we asked the, the hatchlings for our best and worst takes <laughs> of the season. Always a good uh, excuse always- for me to, you know, re-prescribe Clonopin just to deal with people yelling at us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do need to have... A conversation with my psychiatrist pretty soon, not Libby. Uh, All right, so keeping us honest, our best takes, uh, according to the Hatchlings, are the analysis of John Locke, our appreciation for Mr. Echo, giving SOS the love it deserves. I agree. There we go. Yeah, uh, SOS, I'll say it before, that was by far one of the biggest surprises for me, was was that episode. Agreed. Uh, Bringing back in-jokes like DJ Dom and starting coming out. Uh... Yeah, I feel like we we have like a little runner for each season. We had DJ Dom in season one, but I think it should also be mentioned in our season two podcast, Josh. We actually found out the identity of DJ Dom, which feels like a top three moment of my life. Yes, was it during season two that we found out who DJ Dom is? I'm pretty sure it was because considering that, remember we did that rush towards the end of all those episodes. It oh, couldn't, it, it sure. couldn't have been during our our mad yeah. rush at the end of 2019. Not that I recall, but I don't know. I don't know. Either way, we did it. That was amazing. Um, and also, we uh, the best take is that uh, we had uh, the weirdest Brant steal ever. Yes, uh, and um, which I, I still ag- I agree with that take. I did a, a a podcast a few weeks after where I figured out a tattoo to get put on my body, and that was still not as high concept as what we attempted to do with the lost endings. Okay, so some of our worst takes, uh, according to the Hatchlings, are letting two murders slide. I think people thought we were too easy on Michael. Well, uh, here's here's the thing that I will also say is that I feel like, you know, we go back to the long con when I gave Anthony Cooper a demerit, 
even though he wasn't a part of the episode. Depending on how Anna Lucia and Libby show up in future episodes, I'm just going to say the door might be open for Michael to still earn negative points for killing them. That's all I'm going to say. A worse take was saying that the long con is a good episode. I think I graded it very high. I graded it very high. I do think that it it. Yeah, I think if I if I didn't subscribe to the whatever happened happened rule, I think I would knock that lower than a four point one. I think I'd give that like a four or a three point nine. Um, but the um, I'm leaving it on the field. I'm keeping it where it where it lies. Um, Desmond and Charlie are psychically connected through a random drug. People think that's a shit take. I agree. Not a good take. Uh, Michael uh, being I, a plant is a bad take. Oh my god, that was that was an amazing thing yeah. that we leaked upon. How yeah. he was able to be so surreptitiously hidden yeah. throughout the season. He's a plant. He's all plants in one. Screw you, dude. Uh, and then I think my favorite uh, take of the worst takes is I'm always sad when the episode is over, no matter how long Aww. it is. Um, controversial take. Everyone thought that the Dave marrying time traveling Libby was controversial, so people either loved yeah. it or hated it. Everyone has an opinion about it, no matter what. Which it gets is one of the purposes of a theory as well. Let's uh, let's use this as our last little thing. Um, what if season three was the end of Lost? We're looking ahead towards season three right now, Mike. And there is a world where season three was the end of Lost. Damon Lindelof did a recent interview where he talked uh, in vivid detail about uh, landing the plane, as it were, for for Lost. And uh, it's on Collider. It's worth reading. Uh, Lindelof, mm. he also, I think this is on video as well. Damon Lindelof, one of my, I've, I've said it before, if he wasn't a tremendous television creator, he would be a remarkable television critic. I just love the way that he talks about TV and storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tells a great story about the journey to end Lost, that they were feeling the strain, Stragoy, of the flashbacks and feeling like they were spinning their wheels on, on certain things. Uh, and wanting to end the show actively. And they wanted to end it at three. And they wanted to end it at three so badly that they almost left, uh, that they were like geared up to go. Uh, and that they had a different writer who was going to be like groomed to be the new showrunner of the show until they were able to negotiate with ABC uh, that they would have an ending for the show. ABC's starting point, Steve McPherson, who was the president. Uh, started with like, all right, you can end the show. If you think it's what's best for the show, then we have agreed that you can end it after 10 seasons. Uh, and Lindelof, oh, and, Lindelof and Cuse were like, yeah, no, we were thinking more like four. Um, and not because they were hard negotiating, but because they actually had the Oceanic 6 story worked out to a degree. They felt like they could do the Oceanic 6 story in season four um, and wrap up the whole show in, in the fourth season. They eventually arrive at six seasons after some back and forth. What if Damon and Carlton got it right and ended things in season three? Season three then suddenly becomes this like crazy propulsive thing, right? Like this shot out of a cannon season of television. I think it would have been bad. I think it would have been. I mean, people criticize season six for having to wrap things up so quickly. Imagine that without any a lot of the mythology that was built out. They're not ready. They're not ready. I think that the pace that they've set with the show. The momentum that exists within the show. This is not a show at this moment in time where we've left in season two that comfortably comes in for a landing in a third season. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I would also say, because if we're assuming that they would not change Live Together, Die Alone, knowing that the third season would be the last, I would not be surprised if at least one of those guys in the hatch doesn't die. It would be weird to bring all three back and then have to resolve their storylines. You can also imagine that there's no Nikki and Paulo, 
in season three. Maybe they don't even bring in a new character like Juliet for season three because they feel like why bring in a new character and then immediately end the show. So much change with her. We lose so much gold. Here's my take. Yeah. Here's you- my take for season three, Mike. You ready? Is I'm ready. I think season three might be the best season of Lost. Ooh. I think it is possible that like the objective answer to what is the best season of Lost is actually season three. I think it's a pivotal season of the show. I think it is a it, yes. it it is the end of book one. It is it is going to contain some of the very best episodes of the show. It is also going to contain arguably the worst episode of the show. And that worst episode of the show is going to be arguably the most important episode of the show. Because it is going to be the episode that is going to convince ABC to end the show. To agree to, to Damon and, and Carlton's demand. Yeah, to say not nah, 10 seasons. We'll stick, we'll go with your They six. will be able to point to Stranger in a Strange Land and say, see, we have to end it. We can't do this. This cannot be the legacy. Um, season three is going to be the last season of the classic era. Season three is going to yes. have urgency. Season three is going to have the specter of rescue looming large over it. Season three is going to have outstandingly meaningful character death in the form, certainly of Charlie, to a lesser degree, but to me in a big way, Mr. Echo. Um, It's going to contain the show's by far biggest surprise in, I can't tell you how long, since the the opening of The Hatch Mm -hmm. in the flash forward, right? Like, I think that it's, if it's, if it's John Locke can walk uh, and was previously paralyzed, then it's what is inside the hatch. It's a man and it's the Dharma initiative. And then it's the flash forward. Are those like the defining twists yep. so far? And I think the flash forward is the hinge on which all of Lost turns. Do things turn on a hinge? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Uh, but you go through the looking glass, quite <laughs> literally. The final rush of season three, and we had talked about this in season one, is the best series of episodes of the show. Um, from, from the brig yes. through the end of season three is the best string of episodes. Those are all 4.2s. That's the brig. That's the man behind the curtain. That's greatest hits. That's through the looking glass. They are all 4.2 episodes of the show, uh, at least for me. Um, this is going to be our, our heaviest hitting Benjamin Linus season of Lost that we're about to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to get through Hydra Island. You have to get through Hydra Island, and that's tough. Um, but I think maybe it's not, it's not so tough when you think of like the totality of the season. But I, I think that one of the things that I love the most about Lost is the thing that I love the most about John Locke which is that it's flawed, which is that it's very human. Um, it's the evaluation of this epic story with the humanity that's driving it, not just in front of the camera and in the context of the story, but behind the camera as well. Who's in the writer's room? Who's putting this shit together out there on the beach? That stuff is as powerful to the, to the overall feeling of loss to me as anything. Um, Giacchino's work. Even in Stranger in a Strange Land, and I can't wait to talk about it because we will play this as a sound, whether it's you or me who is in charge of the sounds that week, I will make sure this is on there. It's Stranger in a Strange Land ends with an all-time Giacchino music moment. Uh, it's got Oceans Apart, the Juliet theme, and it is gorgeous. It's mm-hmm. staggering. It's stunning. So season three is an imperfect season of Lost that has some tough stuff that you have to get through in order to get into some of the goldiest gold of the show. Um, and... Yep. I think that there is just something very raw and honest and classic and urgent and forward pushing about season three that is like the best of the best of the best of the best stuff. Um, I I think that season three is 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 secretly the best season of Lost is my hot take going into the show. 
Mm. Well, we'll see how those the secrets are revealed. Because the other thing on top of that that I think season three, especially on the heels of season two, because let's also think about the mentality of season going into season three was people felt maybe erroneously so that they thought season two dropped the ball. It's the, the sophomore slump theory that you know every great show that has a great first season has a subpar second season. I think the rankings show that we disagree with that. But I think season three, you know, they made a, they had a, a very experimental time bringing in a bunch of new characters for season two that they ended up killing off mostly. And then, you know, the, the rest, Mr. Echo ends up getting killed off five episodes into season three. And Bernard sort of gets pushed into the background. Uh, he's in a little bit of season three, but he doesn't get a flashback episode again. But the characters that get really brought in and fleshed out in season three is ridiculous. And I would say probably the strongest group of new characters that we see in the show we get Juliet, who I am so... I think Juliet's going to be swimming in MVP points. I hope so. By the end of season three, at least. I, I think she's an incredible character, and she's such a fun way to introduce the different shades that the others can bring. As you mentioned, we finally get to discover Benjamin Linus, not Henry Gale, who Ben Linus is as a leader, and to watch him go from the great and mighty Oz to finding out his backstory, to having his plans fall apart, and he's beaten and bloodied as Jack makes the phone call on the transceiver is great. Richard Alpert, who we've discussed many times, we are finally going to meet. It's a little crazy that still Richard Alpert, who has his own, one of the best episodes in general of Lost, if not season six outright, has not been introduced yet, a la Desmond. We get random little throwaway characters like Mikhail, the man who my hot take going in is that he dies in Enter 7-7 and he is the smoke (laughs) monster the rest of the season. We will put a pin on that. We get Carl, uh, but uh, with Carl we get Alex, who has appeared a couple times in season two but gets built out a lot. There's a lot of audaciousness in season three. And much like season one, I think a lot of our enjoyment was also derived from like what was going on in the process behind the scenes as well. And you shed a bit of light of it there in the point about uh, Damon and Carlton's initial pitch to have Lost be a three-season arc. But I think what will help sort of guide us along the first six episodes uh, through, you know, Jack yelling, run, damn it, Kate, run, is going to be looking at what they were attempting to do in these first yeah. few episodes and how that resonates both on screen and what happened off screen with the show's ultimate decision to be like, okay, Let's start to gear up towards this end game and figure out exactly what they're doing. I am extremely excited for season three. I'm so pumped up. I'm so pumped up. I've been really excited to get here. I've loved this season so much. I know best season of Lost is a is a hot take. And also because like I will also say season five <laughs> is secretly the best season of Lost. So like the, you know, my takes are basically invalid. But I think like this is this is like it's so yeah. lost this season. Season three of Lost is so lost, if that makes no, sense. No, it, it, it gets lost and it finds its way. It finds its purpose. Yes. It, well, it's just like, it is, it is like a distillation. Like, if you can distill Lost into a nectar that's drinkable, like, mm. that is season three for me. Um, so I'm so pumped for it. I love the warts of this season. Uh, I, the Nikki and Paolo stuff, I cannot wait to talk yeah. about that. And, and the, the admission of failure that is expose. And the, and the pure catharsis from both a creator and a fan perspective in the way they literally bury those characters is one of the most fascinating meta moments I've ever seen on television. It is, it is a perfect episode of TV is expose. Expose is perfect it is glorious it is a it is the best mea culpa in tv history that i have encountered uh as far as like an episode is literally like an apology letter um it's so fun i'm so hyped 
It sucks that we gotta wait a, another additional Sorry. week. <laughs> but I, mean, I gotta, I gotta get a bag placed over my head yes, and move to a different yes, location yes. before we get back together to talk Lost. Yes, but we gotta, we gotta, we gotta pump the brakes on it. We're gonna get to season three in two weeks. Next week, I'm gonna be back with John Krause plus a special guest to talk about the literary references from season two of Lost. We'll talk about the ARG, the alternate reality game. We're gonna hear about Bad Twin. I think it'll be a very fun show. So one bonus show coming next week. And then the season three premiere is going to be coming out. Coming out on July 24th. It's just exciting times here on Down the Hatch. Yeah, and, you know, it's crazy to think about, like, wow, I can't believe, you know, it took us so long to get through season two. Season three has the same, like, one less episode, right? It's it's 23 instead of 24. So we're going to be spending a similar amount of time. I think, actually, through the looking glass is either going to be, like, ending right on or right near the end of 2020. So it's this is basically going to be down the hatch for the rest of the 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 year, yeah, and I'm extremely happy. It is for the that. rest of 2020. Whatever else comes, <laughs> we'll be There'll here. Always be season three of Lost. We'll we'll be here. We're going to be here, and we're going to be talking about a season. Whether or not you agree that season three is uh, is an elite season of the show. I think if you listen to Down the Hatch and you've made it through two full seasons of this show along the ride that Mike and I and I have been on for getting very close to a full year at this point then hopefully it means that you are taking away some of the joy that we clearly have talking about this show and just talking to each other and getting to spend a week with each other, like a, a, you know, a couple hours mm-hmm. every week with each other as friends. Hopefully we are your friends in your ears and hopefully the joy that we are feeling and just the humanity that we are feeling when the world is terrible, we are feeling that too. Um, helping you feel less alone, helping you feel less crazy, whatever else is going to come here in this shitty year that has been 2020, yep. this insanely challenging year that has been 2020, this transforma- this transformational year, this transformative year in many ways in 2020, we're going to be here talking about a season that excites the hell out of both of us. So I, I mm-hmm. think... Um, I. I think that the podcast is going to be lit for the next several months. And I'm very pumped about that because I'm going to need that. And if you're going to need that too, then hopefully that energy is going to translate to all of you. We will be back very soon with more Down the Hatch. Subscribe to the podcast if you have not done so already, though I imagine you have. Send us your feedback. Down the Hatch at postshowrecaps.com is the best way to get in touch. But you can also tweet at us at postshowrecaps, at roundhoward, at a Mike Bloom. Type will be back next week with the Lost Season 2 Book Club, and we'll be back on July 24th with the Lost Season 3 premiere recap. Until then, everybody, take care. Bye bye.